Dave Pryor, welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Mike Kottmeyer has carved some time out of his busy afternoon today. Mike, thank you for being here. Awesome, Dave. Happy to be here, man. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So um, Mike has very kindly agreed to entertain a question I have. And, and if you haven't seen Mike in action, one of the coolest things to get to watch is when people reach out and ask for help, watching Mike start to understand what's going on with them. So I'm just if you could maybe high level, at least as a starting point, Mike, when people yeah. call or when they write and they're asking for help, like what is your process for trying to figure out how we can support them? Yeah, it's interesting. I actually remember very vividly the moment I kind of went, oh, I actually have a process. It's actually something that I do and I do it repeatedly every time. <laughs> you know, it's like you do something enough and you're like, oh, okay, there's a pattern here, right? And it's pretty cool. Well, so, so like when, whenever I, you know, whether it be a, you know, a sales call or somebody, you know, just calls up and says, Hey, can I pick your brain? Or whether it be like in a situation with a client on site, something like that, the, the, the thing that I learned a long time ago is you can't presume to know the answer. You can't presume to be able to tell somebody else their problem. Right. Um, you know, because everybody's situation um, are oddly common, but oddly unique at the same time. And so what I kind of learned what I do is I usually break up almost any conversation conceptually into three parts. And the first part is I ask questions, but there's but there's a methodology to that. Right. I ask questions and then I teach and then apply. And, and so the way it kind of works, right, is, is if you get me on the phone and you say, hey, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that, like, help me understand. What I, what I do is I walk through our mental models, right? Leading Agile's mental models. You and I have talked about first principles a lot. We always go back to that same thing. So, so I, I operate under the assumption, and it's true, I want to say all the time. I, I, I just every bit of me wants to hedge and say almost true, almost all the time. But like, I can't think of a situation where somebody's called me where the problem isn't somewhere in the team's backlogs, working tested software kind of a thing. So if you get me on the phone, the first thing I'm going to ask about is like, talk with me about how you form teams. Um, what are your teams made up of? Uh, what are they organized around? What kind of problems are they trying to solve? Right. And I try to get people to tell me because I suspect, because it holds true every time that people have team formation strategy problems. Right. They have um, their they they don't have everyone and everything necessary to deliver what they're responsible for. They have external dependencies. They have people that are matrix across multiple teams, right? All those things, right? Sure. And so and so there's almost like always like a team formation pattern failure. And then I'll ask, I'll go, okay, well, tell me a little bit how you, you do backlogs, right? Um, you know, we test like invest model, card conversation confirmation. Um, as a user, I want some feature to get some benefit, right? That kind of thing. You start hunting, like, how are you doing backlogs? Do Are they small enough to where the teams can do a handful of them in the sprint or something like that? Okay. And, you know, because what I'm hunting for is can the teams process a backlog item 
um, during sprint planning? Uh, can they exit sprint planning with a some reasonable idea of what they can commit to, what they're what they can actually accomplish at the end of the sprint? Um, I started asking questions around: Is velocity stable? Are they doing estimation? Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Are they swarming? Do they have burn up or burn down within the sprint? Right, all those kinds of things. And you know, then you know, can you get to a definition of done at the end of the sprint? Is it potentially shippable? Is it testable? Um, can the customer look at it? Can the customer walk through it? Right. And looking for all kinds of different variations on definition of done. Okay. And so just to re-anchor, right, we're really talking about like basic team level scrum kind sure. of stuff. There's different models as you, as you go up the stack. Right. And so, and so what'll happen is that I'll spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes in an hour just probing and just getting them to tell me stuff. And then what will generally happen after that is, is I'll say, okay, well, based upon my experience, based upon industry best practice, these are the things that I see that work. And so okay. I'll start talking about like what well-formed backlog looks like. So Why not, not telling them what's wrong, telling them what works. Yeah. Well, so, so this is, this is the art of it, right? Is when you ask questions um, I'm walking this framework, teams, backlogs, working test right. software, structure, governance, metrics, practices, culture, systems first, um, dependencies, things like that. So I'm hunting for, for what I know to be common failure modes, but I'm not telling them anything about themselves at this point. Okay. Can I, can I, can I ask you one question about this? Yeah, sure. yeah. So this, and this, I think would apply to anybody at a coaching level as well. So you said that you're, you're kind of, purposely keeping yourself from knowing the answer and I'm wondering how you hold that while you are, you're kind of running around poking, looking for the weaknesses, yeah. but yeah. at the same time, holding on to the idea that I'm not going to decide this is what the answer is. Until well, well so here's, here's the interesting thing. And this is, this is what I, even a lot of coaches or consultants don't understand. I think is, is knowing the right answer and our field is like table stakes. I mean, it's the price of admission. If you don't know how to do Scrum, if you don't know how Scrum works, you don't want to do transformation work, like whatever, right? I mean, that's that's why you're employed. That's what you do, right? Yeah. So knowledge is the price of admission. Um, influence mm -hmm. and getting somebody to hear you is, and getting somebody to act upon the things that you say is, is a totally different challenge. So <clears throat> if... If you came up to me and you said, Hey, Mike, I'm having a hard time, um, you know, getting scrum to work. Teams can't stabilize velocity sprint planning's, uh, uh, you know, not, not going well daily stand. Mm -hmm. Like you tell me all these things and I go, well, so here's your problem, right? You have to have backlogs this way. You have to have teams this way. You have to do this, this way. You have to do blah, 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 blah. And if you're not going to do that, you're going to fail. Boom. Yeah. And they go, well, I can't do any of that. Like I can't make any of that fixed. So I guess I'm just screwed. Well, and there are a lot of thought leaders who are kind of like, well, then you're not cool enough to work with me at that point. I mean, well, there's people well, yeah, like that right. so, but, the, but the process, right? So, so the process is always about getting people to see. So like, so like one example that I use um, that I think is really super interesting to me, and this, this is real life, multiple real life examples of this, is if you're in a room and somebody comes up to you and says... Um, how do you write a user story, right? Product person comes up and says, how do you write a user story? And we just go, oh, I know the answer. This is how you write a user story. Um, I want to say nine times out of 10, right? It probably depends upon the circumstances. But most of the time when somebody's asking a question like that, there's a meaning, there's a reason behind why they're asking it. 
So, and this is probably going to frustrate some people, but you know, typical consultant stuff. It's like, anytime anybody asks me a question, I'm like, why do you want to know that? Right. Cause here's the thing. If somebody asks me even a straightforward question and I don't know why they're asking me for it, I can assume, I can say, Oh, they just want to know how to write a user story. But, but often, especially in a world of, of where you're changing people's stuff, you're moving their cheese, right? right. Um, a lot of times there's fear and there's resistance and there's hesitancy and people don't necessarily feel safe. And so I would say, um, you know, maybe there's a 20% chance that if somebody asks me how to write a user story that they actually want to know how to write a user story. I'd say the other 80% <laughs> is they're looking for reasons not to have to write user stories. Okay. Okay. And, and and so this is like a really common scenario. How do I write a user story? And they go, well, okay, this is what happens. You do, this is the format. This is this, this is how you work with the team. This is how it happens, blah, blah, blah. And in the back of their mind, they're going like, yeah, no way. That's like, I'm a product person. This is, that's business analyst stuff. Or, or I've got to work with customers and do important things. That's like something somebody else does. Right. So, so they're probably listening to your answer and thinking of a thousand reasons why they don't want to do that. Okay. So if I can sit down with somebody and go, okay, cool. Like, well, talk to me a little bit about what it is you're trying to, you know, why you're asking. Uh, well, so rather than playing into their bias confirmation needs, you're just taking them down. Yeah. Well, so like Seth Godin, I'm, I'm going to rattle hold. Seth Godin talks about, um, Seth Godin's a, a, a marketing guy who I read. He's written a bunch of different stuff that, that people might appreciate. Lynchpin, Tribes. He's written a bunch of stuff on marketing. He's one of my, one of my favorite blog um, people. And one of the things he talks about is with resumes. He goes, he goes, resumes are a waste of time. And you're like, well, why are resumes a waste of time? The only thing a resume does is give somebody a reason to exclude you. Oh, they don't have the right certifications. They don't have the right work experience. They don't have the right this. They don't have the right that. Right. right. So when people are looking at resumes, often they're not looking for a reason to hire you. They're work looking for a reason to whittle Lead you out. Yeah. Right. And and I think it's kind of human nature. It's so it's like it's so it's like not every question, not every ask is at face value. So getting back to how do you know the answer? And I'm gonna I'm gonna augment your comment and have the self-discipline to not just answer the question for them or tell them what they're doing wrong. Okay. Is you recognize that you're playing a longer game of influence and not a game of I'm the smartest guy in the room. So let me let me go through again, right? So you start off and you're asking questions, but not just any questions, not random questions. You're asking questions that go into your knowledge of common failure modes. Mm-hmm. So I know almost everybody can't form teams, right? They can't build backlogs, right? They can't produce working tests of software, right? They don't do networks of teams and orchestration of, of requirements between teams very well. They don't measure very well. Um, they don't govern work very well, right? They you know, just, again, they're just not organized well at scale. So I'll hunt teams, backlogs, working tests of software, structure, governance, and metrics. I'm looking for dependency issues. I'm looking for um, mental model problems about the way they're trying to do their transformation. So I'm asking questions in those targeted areas. And then I'll, if I'm in the room, I'll transition. I'll go, hey, do you mind if I go to the whiteboard? Or if I'm on the phone, I'll say, hey, do you mind um, if I just share a few things with you? And I don't tell them anything about themselves. Mm-hmm. nothing about themselves. What I tell them is that from my experience, industry standard rec- best practices, what I've seen work is teams need to be formed this way. Backlogs need to be formed this way. And okay. working test software needs to be produced like this. And then I go up, man, this is how teams. So there's no judgment towards them. At no all. judgment. No judgment. 
But let me tell you what I'm doing, right? The, the things that they tell me that are jacked up are the things that I teach to. Okay. Okay. So now get this, right? You just told me what your failure mode was without telling you anything about yourself. I attempt to share with you best practices from my experience, take it or leave it. Right. I'm not judging you. I'm not saying about you. And if you do that well, right. And you create sufficient connection and relationship in the conversation, what will usually happen is that somebody will be like in the back of their mind, they're like, I just told him that that wasn't working very well. And he just told me something to do. That's not what I'm doing today. Right. And it creates cognitive dissonance. And they want to resolve the cognitive dissonance and it will almost always result in a, well, okay. I never really thought about it that way. Um, How would I do that here? Or given this constraint, how would I make that happen? Given that constraint, how would I make it happen? And if you notice, right, then what they've done is they've asked me for help. Mm -hmm. And at the point that they've asked me for help, then I have, permission to coach them. Right. And, and again, right. And and we fall into the trap. We think that just because somebody called us up and asked for our help, that they really want our help. They don't always really want our help. Right. Um, I don't think they just want, they just want to feel like they're right. half the time. Well, well, maybe, or maybe they're looking for validation or maybe they're looking to exchange ideas or whatever. Right. And no judgment. Right. But just because they asked you for help, doesn't mean that you have permission to tell them that they're wrong. Okay. They have to ask, right? And so the game often is helping them understand, like understanding enough about their world, having empathy, having a point of view that like speaks to that empathy, like that understanding of their situation. Mm-hmm. And then, and then um, creating enough relational safety to where they feel like they can go, well, okay, that's a really a hard problem for us. What would you do? And then I can go down that thread because that's what they're interested in. And I can unpack it. I can ask them harder questions. I can give them examples. I can do what if scenarios I can give, you know, whatever, whatever I need to do to help them see mm-hmm. that, that, that there's, that there's a gap to close here. Okay. That makes sense. It does. So we have these calls leading out to these O&I calls. And, um, so, so for everybody else, it's uh, something I lifted off of uh, Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams book, something he did, Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Middle East or something. He called it Operations and Intelligence. So three days a week, we have these operations and intelligence meetings where we do like account reviews, content presentations. Right? It's just a way of keeping us all on the same page as an organization. So it's all hands. It's open to everybody. Um, and so there you go. That's the O&I call. That you and, and people that I've interviewed at the company have said that a lot of them said this is one of the most amazing and most valuable things at the company because nowhere else do you get direct access to leadership so frequently. Well, well, the the thing that's interesting about it, right? And this is a total aside from I think where you want to go, but um, you know, most every morning we do around the room with the leadership team, and we are directly talking to each other, right? I mean, like obviously we don't talk about like people issues and performance issues in that regard, but we're, we're talking about sales pipeline. We're talking about profitability. We're talking about problems that we're having. Um, I'm, I'm holding my execs to account. Like, I mean, it's like, it's raw, right? It's like, I mean, it's like, a, it's like getting invited, inviting 160 people to a staff meeting. 
Yeah. Right. Like, like it would normally be behind closed doors. So yes. it's a meeting, right. So, yeah. All right. And uh, on some of these calls, different groups within the organization, communities of practice in our, in our organization yeah. come and present stuff. And um, last week we had a situation where a group was presenting and you were playing the part of the customer yeah. asking a question and they were uh, attempting to kind of lead you in a certain direction that yeah. kept going away from your question. And you kept trying to help yeah. them see that like you're, what you're doing is kind of denying my question and yeah. trying to answer something I'm not asking you about. So yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how you see that line when, because that, that would be a really easy thing to stumble over, I think. Yeah. Well, so, so this is the interesting thing that we have going on. Again, just to establish some more context. Um, as you might imagine, like Leading Agile, we're, we're over 160 people now. And there's a lot of different things that are going on in our different clients. And there's, there's, um, you know, different shades of gray around the different work that we're doing, different clients like interpret the work differently. We're trying to figure out how to get um, more authoritative point of view out in market, whether it be via podcasts or blogs or whatever. And, and everything can't single thread through me in that regard anymore. So these content presentations are often they can, they can sometimes be things that are kind of part of our core frames and the way that we think about the world. Um, but oftentimes, these are presentations that people are giving based upon their work to help literally educate me and the executive team about um, how we are advancing the state of the art on the ground with our clients. And yeah, right. So, so one of our one of our senior consultants was, um, I think, doing something around OKRs or something like that. And um, and it's just not that's not my deep expertise. I mean, I'm conversant, understand, and that kind of a thing. And and what happened was was um, I think this person wasn't in this particular case prepared to give like a presentation. They, they thought they were just kind of giving an update on something. And then the content presentation was going to be the next hour, but I dug into something, right? Something tweaked my brain and, and I just, and I want to dig into it and yeah. Right. And, and so, so what it ended up being was like a very solid teaching moment in that world for um, how do you make sure that before you answer a question, you understand the other person's like worldview, their point of view, right? That kind of a thing. We talk about, I know we've talked about on this podcast, but it's probably been a minute um, about this thing that we use internally called an influence trust loop or a trust influence loop. Yes. And, and what we talk about is the idea of when you have access to somebody in power, you know, in my company, obviously me or my leadership team, but you know, it can be you know, your client on site, it can be an executive at the client on site. When you're, when you're dealing with somebody in power and you have access to them, like the job, the first job is to establish empathy, which means that I need to understand their problem the way, and here's the key phrase, the way they understand their problem. Okay. And so it's not just you enough should to pause for a second on that one, because that was a really big deal. And also part of you asking them why they're asking the question that they're asking. Yeah. Well, so like, so like nine times out of 10, like if somebody calls me like, in, and it's the sales process or something, I, like I've said, I've sat in boardrooms with the C-suite of fortune 50 companies. And I'm like, look, it's a really high powered room. Why are you guys here? Why do you guys want to do this? Right. Cause I need to hear them say what's important to them right. and what they care about. And so whenever you have access to power, 
You need to understand what they're concerned about from their point of view as they understand it. Okay. And then the dance, right? And so we talked about one way of doing this with this permission to coach thing, but the dance is, is I need to have a point of view, a way to solve their problem that resonates with them. And with their problem. And yeah, with, with them their perception the understanding of their problem, of their problem right? Because right? think about all the different ways that that can fail. And this is kind of what happened on that call that you want to talk about the other morning is the, is what I was trying to do is I was trying to talk about OKRs and we, what we were really hunting was the nature of like, almost like the recursive nature of OKRs. And so like you have outcomes and you have key results that lead up to those outcomes. But as you kind of like go down the stack, as they cascade down, it's like one person's key result is like another person's outcome. And then they just kind of hop down the organization that way, right? And they're all kind of nested into this loop, right? So, okay. so that's really what we were kind of hunting. But what we didn't do a good job of on that call, and again, in all fairness, person wasn't prepared. They kind of walked into the to the to the arena with me and <laughs> didn't know they were in for a fight, right? And so, and so we're we're hunting down that. And I kept getting reframed and reframed and reframed and reframed and reframed. Which is also something to, to, I want to make sure everybody knows that like reframing yeah. is something we talk about here as well. That is part of yeah. part of the job. You have to be able to do that. Yeah. For, so 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 sometimes, yeah, for sure. You have to be able to hold, you have to be able to hold your point of view in a room. So like when I walk in, I'm dealing with teams. Like I got to get them to the team's backlogs, working test the software frame, the structure governance metrics frame, dependencies kill agile frame, structure first frame or, or systems first frame, then practices and culture, right? So there's a whole bunch of stuff where it is perfectly appropriate to reframe somebody's perspective. Mm -hmm. But when you're playing an influence game, the idea is, is that you need to demonstrate empathy for my problem the way that I understand my problem. Key point, the way I understand. Instead of problem. telling you you have the wrong problem. Instead of telling me I have the wrong problem or I need to think about my problem. Now, again, right, sometimes you swing for the fences, right? And I've done that in, in sales cycles too, right? Where they're like, well, I think I have a safe adoption problem. I'm like, ah, oh, you have a team's backlogs working tested software problem. And I'll sit in that discomfort for an hour and a half and work with them to try to get them to see. Because if I can't get that core point across and nobody believes what I say in that room, yeah. then then that's not what we do, right? Like I'm not a safe implementer, right? I'm not a process implementer. I'm a organizational design, organizational structure guy, right? So can and so yeah, go ahead. I wanna I wanna dig into this part a little bit. So you okay. you reach a point where you understand what you believe the issue is through through their lens. Yeah. And then you're going to have to make a choice. I'm either going to brute force this by telling them like, no, here's what your problem actually is. There's, or, there's some art to that brute force, but yeah. Or I'm going to meet you where you are and yeah. I'm going to help you to go through these three different mm. steps, right? You know, ask yeah. questions, um, educate, and kind of connect everything. How do you know like which one? To, I mean, is that just like practice that you get yeah. that figured out? Well, so yeah, we are really we're going down a whole lot of little side paths here. So I'm going to see if we can go down these little recursive yeah, yeah. back up, right? I'm so, trying to help people yeah. understand. No, I want cool, I want right? folks to understand how it works for. So like brain. one of the things that's like really common in our industry is somebody calls up and they say, "Okay, well, what's the difference between leading agile's approach and safe?" Yeah, I'm like I'm like apples and oranges, right? Like I, I have zero issue with safe, zero issue with less, zero issue with any of them, right? No problem at all with any of them. Um, the way that I look at the world of methodology is that 
is that every methodology that's out there worked for somebody in some context and they thought it was a great idea. So they wrote it down and built a certification or wrote a book or did something. Right. So I don't think, I mean, all of the people that are out there doing this stuff have done it and it works. Right. The, The thing that people miss is that, is that the, the, underlying conditions of the organization that were in place that made that methodology work were as key to the success as the methodology itself. Okay. So if you want to do scrum, you must form a complete cross-functional team that is almost pretty solidly dependency free. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, they have to be able to operate off of a backlog that comes from a product owner that has these attributes and is able to build the backlog with these things. Right. You have to have the technological infrastructure to be able to produce a working tested increment of software. So, so what happens is that what I what I tell people with the methodologies, and, and I believe this to be true, is that all of the methodologies out there are built upon what I would consider like a common reference architecture. They all basically have some sort of um, team level function, whether it be Scrum or Kanban. They typically have some sort of orchestration tier, a way that dependencies are handled and cross-cutting concerns are handled across teams. And they have some way of being able to align with um, some sort of higher order governance framework or roll-up of capabilities, mm-hmm. right? And so, so there's, a, there's an underlying reference architecture underneath all of this that gets manifest in a reference implementation, a process reference implementation, that again is dependent upon the underlying characteristics of the organization. So if somebody calls up and says, hey, I'm struggling with Scrum, or hey, I'm struggling with SAFE, I do the same things. Teams, backlogs, working tests, software, structure, governance, and metrics. So you're checking for the conditions. I'm checking for the conditions. I'm trying to see what conditions that they have created. And what I have to convince them is that, or I have to help them see rather, because I believe it's true, um, universally true, is that that if you don't get the underlying conditions right, your methodology won't work, never will work. It's not a matter of doubling down on the practices of Scrum, and it's not a matter of doubling down and getting better at the practices of SAFE. It will never work unless the underlying conditions are created. And so when you say, what's the difference between leading agile's approach and what's the difference between um, say for something, what I would say, again, apples to oranges comparison, yeah, yeah. we focus on the reference architecture patterns of organizational design that enable methodology. Okay. And our job is to, is to adapt the methodology to deal with the underlying organizational constraints while we are changing the organizational constraints to accommodate your methodology of choice. Okay. okay? So said another way, if you want to do safe, fine. Like I have zero issues safe. Yeah. I mean, what we do in Leading Agile is, is close enough to safe to where, like, who cares, right? Um, but but the, the challenge is we built a methodology for how to move the organization to create those conditions. And that's what we do, right? So we create the conditions for the methodology to work. Um, a Wait, lot of times, I have like 50 questions. <laughs> okay, go for it. Well, all I was going to say is just a lot of times people, they, they don't want to buy that story, right? And yeah. if I can't It's hard. I can go into the lean stuff. I can go into capsulation orchestration. I can go into dependencies. I can go into um, process control. I can go into like all kinds of different things, right? Depends on how deep you want to go. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if I can't get them to see the relationship between the process and the organizational structure, 
then then there's just nothing to sell, right? There's nothing to do. And so you asked me the question, you're like, well, how can, how do you make the decision? Well, at the end of the day, I'm not going to sell somebody something or commit to doing a project for somebody that I don't believe will be successful. I mean, okay. We've literally, we've literally turned down hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars of training engagements yeah. because, because if they're not going to do the organizational structure work, our brand is going to be attached with a failed transformation. Okay. It's not that we're perfect, right? I mean, sometimes we get in and it's it's messier. Sometimes people don't want to do things or we get out. We're not influential enough. So I'm not saying that every single thing Leading Agile has done is stood on principle and been perfect, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's messy sometimes, right? But, but, but if I'm not going to sign up for something that's just going to fail right out of the gate that I just know won't work. So that's... That's like a spool of questions now. Um, So one of the ones, one of the things that I was trying to figure out how to talk about, you kind of just went to anyway, which is there are people, I'm going to say it in a kind of flippant way, but there's people who just want a cheeseburger. Like you can tell them like, no, you need to eat healthy. You need to do this. I just want a cheeseburger. Bring me a cheeseburger. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're not, I don't want to say they're not our customer, but they're not in a place where our approach is like suited for what they want. They want, they want the quick, they want the fast and, and we're not quick and we're not the easy button. Well, well, so like, so like, I, I would love to say that this was, um, somehow, um, planned or pre thought out, but one of the things that we got really, really clear on, and it's really served us well, 12 years into building this company is that, is that we lead with marketing. That's the reason why you guys see our stuff. That's why we do podcasts. That's why our stuff's all over LinkedIn and Facebook and whatever is because we want to get our message out. And what we're doing is we're hunting for the people that believe what we believe, right? And as people try and fail with Agile more, there's starting to be a lot of people that are looking or starting to recognize there's something here, yeah. but, it's, but it's not just going to be a training thing, right? We're right. going to have to do some work, right? Um, and in all fairness to Scrum and the other methodologies, right? What, what their mental model is is start doing the practices, and then and then the impediments will reveal themselves, and then you you deal with. Got to do something about those impediments, though. You can't just right? let yeah. them sit there. Well, but the but the problem is the way it actually gets sold a lot is it, it starts with bottom up transformation. Yeah. The kinds of impediments that you see organizationally, you know, again refactoring legacy mainframe, like that's just not a scrum master is just not going to walk into the CIO and go, Hey, we encountered an impediment. You think we could extract this service out of the mainframe and put it in right. the cloud. So we get like, that's just not the way this goes typically. Right? right. And so what you end up with is a bunch of people that are bastardizing the processes of scrum and safe because their organizational design isn't right. So it's not that scrum and safe don't, don't deal with it, but they, but I think like, if you know, 80 or 90% of the problems and you know exactly what's going to go wrong before you start, yeah. I think it's somewhat disingenuous to say, Hey, let's just do a bunch of, let's do a million dollars worth of training. And then, then it's going to show you all your problems that you didn't sign up to fix. Okay. Right. So what we try to do is we try to flip it and go like, okay, we'll train you, right. But yeah. here's all the problems you're going to see. And we want to do that with, with high integrity. Yeah. Right. And so I think, I think I totally lost your question. What, That's oh, okay. You, asking, you totally got it. And you all, and you walked right up to my second question, okay, which is, cool, and perfect. so you oh, were yeah. talking a few minutes ago and, and it's already, ha- it's happened. It's kind of making up for the last one. I've had a couple of moments today yeah. that I'm really psyched about. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had and, a, we had a false start. We had our first and only false start as yeah. a podcast duo yes. here. Last time. But that's good. 
we recorded for an hour and like, yeah, that sucked. <laughs> but that, I think that needed to happen. So um, you said something that sparked an idea that I had never actually connected before. So I, I teach, you know, these people in one client, they have squads and yeah. a lot of people want to adopt the Spotify model. And you said the thing about the conditions are in place. So the conditions that were in place at Spotify, when Heinrich put all that stuff in and it worked so great and everybody tries to copy it now, if those conditions aren't the same at your company and you adopt the Spotify model, you're not going to get the same results that Spotify did because you don't have those preconditions. For sure. And that yeah. is something that I had, I mean, I've been, what, 15 years plus 10 years of Project Magic? Never thought of that before. So I want to thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. So, so, but like, here's the interesting thing. So I'm not like a deep expert on the Spotify model. Right. But, but, but any model, any model. Well, no, but, but Spotify in particular, which I think is interesting, right. Is, is I look at that. Right. And and again, I don't know what, what they call everything, but with the thing that's like the equivalent of a team, right. right? So squad still functions like a scrum team, doesn't it? It still kind of needs to be independent, to be able to deploy independently and work with a customer independently and all these kinds of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So as I've, as I've kind of, you know, summarily, some, summarily kind of evaluated the Spotify model, like all the things that are like cross-cutting concerns are just ways of dealing with interactions across teams and dealing with things like communities of practice and how do I deal with skills and how do I deal with interrelationships and how do I deal with all that stuff? Cool, right? That's why I say same base reference architecture, mm-hmm. just a different a different reference implementation for how you deal with different organizational issues. Right. Zero issue with the Spotify model, totally fine. But I, I don't think there's a world in which failing to encapsulate a team or mm-hmm. failing to orchestrate a dependency when one exists is going to ever work. Right? right. So what you have to do is you have to recognize I don't have complete cross-functional teams that can stabilize velocity over time and actually release anything. I've got dependencies that are being del- are being um, dealt with late in the development cycle and they're destabilizing my ability to do a release or they're impacting my quality or they're whatever. Right. right? And and unless I fix those things, there's nothing magic about Spotify. Okay. Right. Either. Right? So you have to understand why Spotify works yeah. and create the conditions that enable Spotify to work. So, or, so or less or Scrum or XP or whatever. Yeah. So you you can I guess where I'm going with this is you have it seems like you have a choice. I've got a company. I can either find a way to create the preconditions that were in place when Model X saved the day, or I can take the approach of understanding how my own preconditions have created a unique situation that has to be solved. Well, yeah. Right. So like, so again, like that is, that is the root of the thing that I think di- I want to say differentiates us. And, and, and I'll even say this in all fairness, right? Like, I don't, I think people are starting to get this like 10 years ago. I'm not sure I would have agreed 20 right. years ago. Um, it was too new, but I think people are starting to understand just the question is, is like, how do you get people to do it? Right. which goes back to our influence game, right? How do you get people to see? So I'm going to see if I can recurse back up the tree here. Yeah, right? yeah. So we were talking about leading agile and when people call us yeah. and, and so we're a marketing company, right? We do a lot of marketing. I have, I actually have a marketing company within leading agile. It's a fully functional marketing company within leading agile called last mile media. And what last mile media does for us is they, 
originate content, right? So that's all our videos and podcasts and things like that, our graphics and things like that. And then they slice it up and they put it out into all kinds of different channels and they, uh, and they measure it and they amplify it and they make sure that we're um, inspecting and are adapting away into the, to the, to the right people. Mm-hmm. And then based upon the performance of what they're doing, they optimize it and they learn and they get better, right? So we have continuous flow marketing through Last Mile Media within Leading Agile, right? And that's okay. something that we built, right? So really cool capability. Why do we do that? Because it is essential for my sanity, for our team's sanity, that when somebody calls, we're not starting from scratch. Right. So what we try to do is we try to educate, 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 trying to educate the market. So the people that fill out a contact us form or reach out to me over LinkedIn or call somebody in Leading Agile and ask to talk, um, they're typically primed for the conversation. Okay. Okay. And so, and so when I get into an influence situation, it's not the first time they've heard it. Yeah. You know, one of the things, the reason why we stopped doing salespeople around here is there was a guy, he's a really good friend of mine, still a good friend of mine to this day, who is a brilliant sales guy and absolutely killing it um, in market right now, doing really, really well for himself. Um, we I had to let him go. It broke my heart, right? It was awful. We know his family, knows kids, all this stuff. But um, but the problem was is that and and when it happened, is he got me a meeting with the CIO of this company and that he had had a relationship with, but who had not been consuming our material. And like, literally, I'm like sitting in the probably one of the best meetings he had ever set up for me without anything to say to the guy, because I was starting from total scratch. Which is too steep of a curve. Too steep of a curve curve in 45 minutes, right? Um, And so, so our goal is to get people to call us that are generally familiar with our stuff, right? But even still, right? Even still that they're biased towards, they've read my white paper, they've watched my videos, they've seen our marketing content, right? All these different things. They've been on Dennis's, um, you know, Friday uh, lean coffees, like whatever, right? So by the time they call us, I still have to walk them through the, let me understand your unique problem the way you understand it. Yeah. I need to be able to tailor what I say to speak to that problem. Yeah. And what I do is I create relational safety. And, and the way that then once I have the safety, we sometimes we have to go through that loop a bunch of times with a bunch of people in a company. Um, Once we've created that relational safety and they believe that we deeply understand, then they give us permission to go do something. Right. And then it's up to us to execute with fidelity to all the things that I said. And then believing that you understand is also the part where you are building that trust and helping them understand that you see what's going on and you do have that point of view and everything like that. Yeah. So let's pop up a layer, right? So now we're back out to our own eye call, right? So, you know, so what happened, right? Is, is again, person not prepared, wasn't really in the right mental frame of mind. You got to remember these are like seven o'clock Eastern time. So if somebody's West coast or, you know, um, you know, it could be mountain time, whatever. Right. So these are, you're coming in pretty hot, pretty early in the morning. And, um, and Mike is a morning person. Oh, you know, I, I, I learned to be a morning person. My first job was with EDS and GM and I was supporting, the uh, IT needs of the uh, the union guys, and they all started at six thirty. So I just learned professionally to get early starts, right? But then with us in particular, um, if we don't do something early, it, it just won't happen. Trips, yeah. Everybody gets busy with their clients and stuff like that. So yeah, and and me too, right? So it's like we just get up. It's not the the most awesome way in the world to start your day, but I mean, it's about the only thing that works, right? So so we're sitting in a situation where where. Um, and this is what I told told the person on the phone. And this is what I tell anybody that I go sideways with on these calls. It's like, 
It's like the team that we've assembled at Leading Agile are some of the the smartest, um, most informed, most experienced people that we've ever been able to hire. I mean, the the caliber of talent around here is is ridiculous, mind blowing. It's ridiculous, yeah. right? Um, and everybody is smart, right? Everybody has the right answer. the The hard part sometimes, in some contexts, is is um, bringing it to a level where the other person can see and wants to hear, you know? And so when I told the person on, on the phone, I was like, look, like, 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 like we hired you, we love you. We have every interest in you being successful. This is a friendly audience, right? I'm giving you every opportunity to understand me, ask me questions, consult for me, help me understand, right. I'm generally seeking to understand. And what I think happens sometimes and this might get to some of what you're asking. It's like, if you don't do this, if you don't use these kinds of influence techniques, what happens is that um, a lot of times in a client setting, the client like flips the bit and goes, oh, that person doesn't understand, right? And then you become marginalized in the account. And I think that's what happens with employees in companies quite a bit. It's like they have the right answer, but they can't, it can't, ask the right questions and they're not influential enough to help somebody see and to move and to create safety for them. It's like that consulting, yeah. it's like the consultant asks, you know, takes your watch and tells you the time or something like that. Right. Somebody actually hit me with that joke the other day. And, and, and it's like knowing the time is the price of admission. Right. Right. Being able to get somebody to act upon that knowledge is, is the hard part. And, and that was the kind of the teaching moment in that situation was, like totally friendly audience. And I said, at best, somebody flips the bit on you. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't want to interact with you. Worst is you get dismissed from the account, right? It's hard though. And, when you have yeah. the answer and you want to impress this person, you want to be of service to them. Oh, it's like, here's yeah. the quickest way. For sure. I mean, I, oh, and I oh, do yeah. that all the time. So it's so easier for me to tell you than, than to well, show you. Well, so you're in a slightly different situation, right? Because, because in a situation where you're already signed up 20 people, it's a fee for service. It's two days. Right. I mean, your job is to have the answers. Yeah. Right. So if you're training, it's slightly different. Right. So I think of training as like skills transfer. Mm-hmm. Like people come to your classes because they want to do scrum. Scrum's a thing. You teach them how to do scrum. Yeah. But I imagine there's times where somebody comes up with a particularly hairy problem and you're like, and you ask some clarifying questions, right? Because oh, you want to get yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so yeah, but like that's the thing. It's like, it's like, it's like just having the answer is. Gen- is generally insufficient. Right. So, so, okay, we'll go back up a level. Like I'm, I'm re- going back up the, uh, Mike's the dragging us out of right? the rabbit hole bit yeah, by yeah, bit. Yeah, that's yeah, no, cool. Right. You got to do a step <laughs> at a time, though. Step <laughs> at a time. Right. So, so now we're sitting in a situation where, you know, somebody's called leading agile. Um, they've more than likely read a lot of our stuff. Yeah. They're a pretty informed person. They know what and the compass is and all that. Yeah, well, they that were most of the time they do, right? They've at least they've at least experienced all that stuff. Yeah. And so I just ask them a lot of good questions. Right. And and I have to have the discipline to recognize when they are capable of hearing the answer. And and again, right, it's like ask the deep questions, teach them some things in a very non-judgmental um uh, way. But again, like those two steps are related. They just told you what their problems were. Cause you asked them the right questions. Yeah. You, teach, you teach to their problems. You create cognitive dissonance that demands resolution. And then they ask you to resolve the cognitive dissonance. Right. And that's the process. 
of doing it. And it's the only way that I've known to reliably and consistently because like, here's like another interesting thing. Like I've walked into places. There's this one CIO that I was working with one time and, and she had been wildly successful using extreme programming at her last company. Okay. And she leveraged that success into this new company that was way bigger. And the one thing that I had, um, I kind of developed this, like the way of thinking about it, like, and, and I don't want to take anything away from her, but the, I, I, I always said that she was like accidentally successful with XP because okay. the nature of that environment were complete cross-functional teams, very productized organization. Kind of lent um, itself to that. Very technologically oriented, right? Just kind of lended itself to wrapping it in Scrum and XP and, and, and getting a go of it. And she came into an incredibly tightly coupled, tangled up legacy organization and was trying to run the same playbook in that new organization. Mm-hmm. And my, my job was to like, you just can't walk in and say all the success you had, all these things, total bullshit. You're an accidental yeah. agilist, right? All this stuff, never going to work in this new way. I got all the right answers. Listen to me. I'm my cop. My, I work for leading agile. I started this thing. You know, she'd be like, get out of here. Right. So it was a right. process of helping her see, right. Cause she had all this experience, right. She had all this experience. So what worked, what didn't like, how did it is blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, learn all these things like, well, then talk to me a little bit about this organization. Boom, 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 boom. Um, you have the same kind of teams that you had over there. Do you have the same kind of dependency-free environment over there? Well, no, no, no. Well, okay, cool. So like, let's, let's talk a little bit. Like sometimes when you're on the right context, then you have to do this, this, and this. Makes right. sense, right? And it was just bringing her through the process and getting her to see that, oh yeah, there's some conditions that, um, that don't place. exist yeah. in my new world that, that I took for granted in my old, right? Okay. That's fair. Right. And so, but if you just bring, but you have to bring somebody through that, um, that process of creating shared cognition with you. Yeah. And, and again, like the thing that I, I, I can fortunately anchor on is that leading agile knows what it is and we know what we do and we know what problem we solve. Um, we focus on very much systems first structure, grammar, symmetrics. We enable those systems with practices. Then we work to um, help the right cultural behaviors emerge over time. And we have a very structured, disciplined way of doing that, right? It's formed around teams, backlogs, work and test software, structure, governance, metrics, break, manage dependencies, break dependencies, right? All that stuff. And so if I get myself into a situation where I have the opportunity to influence somebody mm-hmm. and we're not moving in that direction, I might swing for the fences and double down over the and brute try force. To somebody or whatever, because, because there, I can't help them if I can't get them to see that. Right. And, and I, and if I'm going to walk away from the opportunity, then I'm just going to swing for the fences and try to get them to see. Well, at least um, that way they heard you. Right. And, and, and it, and it's, and it's happened more than once. If, if I'm guessing probably three, four, five times where, we told somebody the truth and they decided not to sign up with us. Then they came back. It came back yeah. a year or two later <laughs> when it didn't work. I would rather have that deal than to, to fight on the front side. Yeah. Cause you don't want to convince somebody to fall in love with you. They have to come ready for that. Well, well it's, it's hard, right? Because it's just like, I mean, it's like, there's so much stuff going on in the industry and people, people tell stories, right. And it's, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I, I really do believe that the people that take this approach believe that if you train people on practices, um, impediments will reveal themselves and then you'll systematically take out the impediments. Like the teams will self-organize and do that. Um, 
just in practice, I just don't see it. I'm not saying it's impossible for it to work that way. Yeah. Um, just in practice, I think it's a low probability chance of it actually working that way. What I see is it's way easier to break scrum than it is to break dependencies. I like that line. I'm going to use that again. It's way easier to break scrum than it is to break dependencies. Trademark. Um, tra- yeah. So one of the things that's, it's, I feel like I'm kind of seeing, which I hadn't also had not noticed before was that um, there's definitely people out there who try to come across like I am Moses and I'm going to, you just do what I tell you. I'm going to lead you through, but yeah. this is very much a practitioner based. Like it's not, we are, you know, the all knowing it's we'll, we'll come to where you are. Like we do this too. We have these same problems. We see these same things. Here's what we see work. I mean, you're trying to be the practitioner with them, right? Well, well, so, so again, right, it all gets into, it all gets into like, who you're selling to and in what you're selling. So like we have um, one of the leaders on in our organization is a longtime friend and colleague of mine, a guy named Brian Sonnegard. And so um, Brian, he and I met, we were working at a company called Check Free. It got acquired by Fiserv. And then, um, then, you know, I ended up going down version one path, pillar path, started leading Agile 12 years ago. He started getting promoted like crazy, was a CIO of a, a big division um, over there. And um, and a lot of the stuff that leading Agile has evolved over the last 12 years had its, um, had its core in that work that we did together when I was a project manager and he was a director of development, right? And okay. we were in this huge outsized influence game at Check Free back in those days. And when we, when we came into that organization, we had a much smaller footprint of consultants because for one, we were smaller as a company, right. but also we had a leader that like deeply, deeply, deeply understood the problem. Mm-hmm. And you not only had positional authority, but influence and influence across the organization and up the organization. And, and if you have an organizational leader that gets it, really, really deeply gets it and is looking and is willing to wield that influence and that power and take those political risks. I'm not saying that like a lone gun consultant can come in and and make a real big difference, right? Because if you've got that leader underneath your belt or or in your, you know, you know, know, looking for something there, um, then a lot of times they can be that force multiplier for you. Um, You know, often in in some of the organizations that we're running into, we have those force multipliers, but it still is, you know, 30 or 40 people on the ground, um, you know, systematically, you know, trying to help these organizations make these changes. So, so again, right. I mean, I'm just super non-judgmental, right. If you guys want to lead practices, lead practices, you like a single consultant model, like that, that, um, you know, sage in the wilderness kind of model, like, sure, like whatever. Right. I mean, whatever works for people. Um, I just know that there is a class of organizations out there that um, that really need a structured and disciplined approach to doing this, yeah. Because they're literally, um, you know, changing the the wheels on the bus while it's going down the road at eighty miles an hour. I mean, it's just like, I mean, there's just not a lot of room for error. Yeah, there's not a lot of room for trial and error, and so that's kind of the niche that we've fallen into. But but you know, getting back to this kind of original hypothesis here, it's like, how do you know? Um, you know, who's a good fit for us or how do you know if you're a good fit for us? It's like, if the messages resonate, right. Is what it comes down to. Um, very much like we decided a, a long time ago and it's worked out really well for us is that we're a hammer looking for nails. 
And, and it's like, and it's like, I'm not a screwdriver. I'm not a wrench. I'm not whatever. Like we solve a class of problem. We solve it away. We're actually incredibly flexible. And, and it's funny, right? Cause it's like, sometimes I think we get kind of, um, I don't know, it's accused isn't the right word, but I mean, I think sometimes on the outside looking in, it can feel very dogmatic because we have a very strong point of view yeah. with a very strong point of view is really, really simple. Got to form teams, got to build backlogs, got to be able to produce working tests of software. And in some form or fashion, you have to very proactively manage dependencies. Yeah. And the only way you're going to get really get to agile is if you start to systematically break dependencies. It's like that simple. Like that's the core. Like yeah. anything else in that is, is rather flexible as long as we can anchor on those core principles. So we talk about those core principles and those and the people that um, that resonate with those core principles. Um, and they see it, right? Because they've experienced it. They've tried, they failed, they've done whatever. They, they don't want to take any big gigantic risks on the front side. Right. They want to do a structured discipline, right? What have you, they go, okay, I'm a nail, right? Okay. Let's, let's go higher. The I don't <laughs> and this, this is sort of like, almost like you're Neo and you can kind of wave your hand and everything turns into nails. Well, so that's part of the art, right? It's like, you know, as a, as a company, that's an ongoing concern, you know, we deeply believe that that this is the thing that is getting in the way of organizations adopting Agile. Like yeah. 100% believed it in my soul um, for longer than the 12 years we've been in business. And so I'm willing to go to market and say, this is the truth because I believe it is the truth. And if you don't believe it's the truth, then cool, right? Yeah, do God bless you. God bless you. Godspeed. Do what you got to do, right? Your company, no obligation to hire us. Yeah. But, but that's what we do, right? And so we just, we're just super clear about what we do. And the people that think we can help call us. And, and then it ends up not, oh, it ends up, it's not a, you know, 24 month sales cycle. I and mean, yeah. sometimes it's like get on the phone, get alignment, decide to do something within a couple months. Usually we can kind of figure out and approach what's right. So, cool. Yeah. This was awesome. Thank you very much for this. I don't want to yeah. ask you any more questions because it's in a really good place. <laughs> We're just in a good place. This is yeah, really I did a good job. I did a good you job. You were great, man. All the way down and then brought you right back up. Yep. You went, and <laughs> this was great. All right. I'm going to include information if people want to email you or whatever with questions they can. But thank you very much. And we'll oh, be back. Have you, just given up on, have you just given up on the ask me a weird question at the end of this thing? I didn't. I was so worried about the topic for today. After last time, I didn't come up with a weird question. Okay. Well, next. next do you time want to ask me a weird question? No, I got no weird questions for you. The only thing I will tell you that I thought about you because you have this like you live in New York City. Yeah. You have like this crazy small, like six hundred and fifty square. Six hundred square feet. Yeah. I, um, my wife and I, Kimmy, we went up to New York um, for a long weekend about seven uh, weeks ago. I say about for some reason it's exactly seven okay. weeks ago. About eight weeks ago, so about eight <laughs> weeks ago, and we were staying in this little place uh, in the uh, garment district. Um, uh -huh. Oh, you were right. You were right near me. Oh, I live in Chelsea. Close? Yeah, you were oh, right. I, I was just garment district. I guess it was um, West Side, overlooking New Jersey. So I gave mm -hmm. my wife a little bit of crap for giving getting us a view that overlooked New Jersey, but it's okay. I'm just teasing for with my people from New Jersey. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, so I thought about you because we walked in this place and it was like 600, 650 square feet. And I'm like, I'm like, Dave's whole family lives in the place. Yeah. Three, like three people, two cats. It's like as big as my kitchen. Yeah. I was like trying to figure out, like, I'm like, wow. My whole apartment is smaller than the room you're in right now. Oh, for, oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Right? So it's the, it's the it's the advantage of living in rural Georgia or downtown New York. <laughs> no, but you guys have way better food within walking distance, no doubt. Well, we have more interesting smells, too. Oh, the, for sure. And I see your Facebook posts about all the people that are flinging stuff at each other. Yes, too. especially <laughs> the machetes. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I was thinking more like, like wasn't there like some feces thrower at one point? Oh, yeah. Time? There's always. That's just like Tuesday. That's that's, oh, that's, that's, that's the run. <laughs> Not even worth mentioning. You guys start throwing machetes before it's interesting. Yeah, there's a, there's a surprising amount of machete attacks in New York City, which is just always weird. It's like so, the most okay, common I- weapon. So I'll tell you, you can include this in the podcast or not unedited if you want. But yeah. when my wife and I were up there, we were watching that show on Netflix, Inventing Anna. Have you seen that show? Yeah, my daughter and my wife were extras in it. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. That's super cool, yeah. right? Yeah. So we really kind of got into that show. I, that that lady that does it, she did the Bridgerton thing too. And I'm probably uh-huh. going to totally give up my man card for telling you. But it's, yeah. it's, it's really all right. good. Like it's not stuff, like you're right? watching Gilmore Girls. It's yeah, but like that building, that building that was down like off of Park Avenue and like um, 22nd or something like that. Uh-huh. The one that, um, that was like where she was trying to build the whole thing. Yeah. Like we were wandering around New York and we're like, hey, let's go see if we can find that building. We walked all the way over there and uh and uh checked it out. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty fun cool. A New York moment. You guys yeah. got a lot of stuff going on up there. There's so a lot tiny, of cool stuff going on here. Tiny places to live. I think so. of it like this. You know, other people they they work and they save money and they go on vacation. We live where people go on vacation. For sure. So that's the trade-off. For sure. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, man. Thank I appreciate you. It. Appreciate it. This is great. Okay, cool.